Our scripture reading tonight is taken from the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Romans. And we begin reading in chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 16, and we will read through chapter 2, verse 5. The text for the sermon is chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The last two verses of our reading, which I will not then reread. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, 
without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? And now the text. Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness, and forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This is the inspired and infallible Word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we note by way of introduction tonight that Romans 2 verse 4 was one of many controversial Bible passages that played a role in the foundation of the Protestant Reformed churches. In 1924, the Christian Reformed Church officially adopted false doctrine with the three points of common grace in teaching that there is a non-saving attitude of favor in God towards all human beings, elect and reprobate alike. In the first point of common grace, it was taught that this attitude of favor that God has for all human beings can be seen in all the good things that God gives to all. Good health and strength, rain and sunshine for the crops and all kinds of material bounties. But also, the grace of God toward all can be seen in the preaching of the Gospel, which is a well-meant offer so that in the preaching of the Gospel, God sincerely desires the salvation of every single person who hears the Gospel. And in that point, there was then a transition from a non-saving grace of God in material things to a saving grace of God in the Gospel that created controversy. Is there a grace of God toward all men without exception, elect and reprobate alike? The proponents of common grace said, yes, God has a gracious attitude of favor towards all. Those who founded the Protestant Reformed churches said, no, the grace of God is particular. It is in Jesus Christ and for the elect and the elect alone. Attached to the points of common grace, including the first point of common grace, were a number of Bible passages. None of them were explained, but they were simply cited as supposed proof for common grace. And one of those passages was Romans 2, verse 4. The apostle is addressing a man in the text, and according to verse 5, 
This man is a hard and impenitent heart. He treasures up unto himself wrath against the day of wrath. And finally one day will be destroyed in the wrath of God, body and soul in hell. But supposedly, according to verse 4, God is gracious to this man in that in all of his goodness, God seeks to lead this man to repentance. He intends to lead this man to repentance. So there is a grace of God toward all, even to the reprobate. That was the understanding of the text. Now, there's, there's a bit of history to the text. Uh, the origin of the churches concerns this text and many others. Tonight, it's not our purpose to simply explain what the text doesn't mean. There's been plenty of that, especially early in our history. But the goal tonight, as always, is to expound the text, to explain the words of the text in the service of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we do tonight. And the Word of God is very sharp, and it does come to all of us who are assembled in this house of worship tonight, and it says to us, despisest thou the riches of God's goodness. Let's consider the text taking as our theme, despising God's goodness. Noticing, first of all, the goodness of God. Second, the despising of man. And third, the sharpness of the Word. Twice in the text, the Apostle refers to the goodness of God. Verse 3 concludes with reference to the judgment of God. And then verse 4 says, Or despisest thou the riches of His Goodness, God's goodness, and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God in the text is simply God's saving grace towards sinners. It's God's good will. The word goodness is literally loving kindness. And we find that same word translated kindness. In Ephesians 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God is not only good in himself as the sum total of all of his perfections, God is not only absolute goodness in his own divine being, but God has a good will toward some of the creatures that He made. God has a gracious attitude. God has a favorable inclination. God has loving kindness toward elect sinners. He has a good will. And that good will within God is manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to the book of Romans, the chief manifestation of the goodness of God is His righteousness in Christ. Here is His loving kindness. Christians in Rome. God has a good will. He's loving and kind. And here it is. God says, I love you. My people, I love you. And I will bless you. And I desire to live with you. And so, I take all of your sins 
And I forgive you because those sins have been imputed to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the propitiation for your sins. And I take the perfect righteousness of Christ and I impute it unto you so that it's yours. It's received by faith without the works of the law. Righteousness in Christ. According to the whole book of Romans, that's the chief manifestation of the goodness of God. God is good. He has a good will. A good will toward His people. Goodness in the text is the general term. There are two species or two particular manifestations or aspects rather of that goodness. And according to the text, they are the forbearance and long-suffering of God. So that we read, or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. And the idea is, despisest thou the riches of His goodness. That's the general term. And, that is to say, His forbearance, and He mentions them in the same breath, forbearance slash long-suffering, which belong to His goodness. Now, typically in theology, we, di- we distinguish between God's forbearance and God's long-suffering. His forbearance applies to the reprobate. His long-suffering applies to the elect. Strikingly, in this text, God's forbearance is part of His goodness, His loving kindness, His goodwill toward the elect. We could also find a passage in Scripture that speaks of God's long-suffering and applies it to the reprobate. For example, Romans 9, verse 22, which speaks of the vessels of wrath fitted unto destruction. Forbearance and long-suffering. Forbearance is the suspension of the full outpouring of God's wrath as that wrath hangs there, as it were, until what verse 5 calls the day of wrath, when there is then the full outpouring of all of God's wrath. Until then, God forbears. Every day God is angry with the wicked. Every day the wicked provoke Him by their sins. And God brings temporal judgments upon the wicked already in this life. But the full outpouring of all of His wrath in destroying all of the wicked body and soul in hell and the burning up of the whole creation, the full outpouring, it waits. It hangs suspended. There is, as it were, a dam, a big wall, and the waters of God's wrath are building and building, but the dam holds until the day of wrath Then God pours out all of His wrath. But through history, the reprobate have this cup of iniquity that must be filled up. They work out all of their sins through time. And finally, ultimately, in the great tribulation under the reign of Antichrist, when the wicked oppose Christ and His church as never before, then their cup of iniquity fills all the way to the top. And then God no longer forbears. Then He pours out all of His wrath. Until now, for now, He forbears. 
Now the text, interestingly, speaks of the forbearance of God as part of His goodness toward the elect. And so the meaning has to be that God forbears in His judgment with respect to the reprobate. God forbears ultimately for the sake of the elect as all things are ultimately for the sake of the elect. God does not pour out all of His wrath now upon the wicked. And that's ultimately for the sake of the elect. Because more of the elect have to be born. The Gospel still has to go through the world and bring to saving faith the elect of God. So God forbears. God did that historically. God announced judgment upon the first world that He would come and destroy it with a flood, but He didn't immediately destroy the world with a flood. For for 120 years, Noah was building that ark. And then God brought the judgment of the flood. Or God would bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, but not immediately because the angel had to come and rescue Lot and get him out of that city And then God rained fire and brimstone down upon Sodom. When Paul writes this epistle, he's writing to Christians who are in the city of Rome. Rome is so depraved and so wicked. In fact, the Roman Empire is a historical type of the future anti-Christian world kingdom. But God did not pour out all of His wrath upon the kingdom of Rome and then throughout the new dispensation today upon the world. God does not pour out all of His wrath because more of the elect still must be born. The Gospel must still be brought to the nations for the salvation of God's people. God forbears that full outpouring of wrath hangs. Now in one sense, He didn't forbear. All the wrath was poured out. The dam wall was removed. And all the waters of God's wrath did come pouring out. And that was at Calvary. Upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sin, the sin-bearer. And God poured out all of His wrath upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins. And Christ redeemed us. And that guarantees that until the last day comes, all of the elect who were purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be brought to salvation. They will all be saved The Holy Spirit will save those for whom the Lord Jesus died. Until that last great day, God forbears. He doesn't destroy all of the wicked and burn this world with a fervent heat. He forbears. That's His goodness. His loving kindness. His goodwill toward His elect people forbearance. The Apostle speaks also of the long-suffering of God, and that long-suffering refers to God's mercy toward the elect in that He never grows weary with His elect as He leads them to final salvation. There's not only a day of wrath for all the reprobate, there's the great day of salvation for all of the elect. And until that day comes at the end of history, 
We are very weak. And we need God moment by moment because we are sinners. Every single day we sin. And every single day we need God to bring us to repentance. And we need forgiveness with God. Every single day we are surrounded with so many temptations and we need God to give us grace to be able to stand before temptation in the day of evil. Every single day we bear up in all these afflictions and hardships of this life, these fiery trials, and we need so much grace from God to be able to stand. How we need God. We are so dependent upon God. And God doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow weary in giving us all the grace and mercy that we need as He leads us unto final salvation. He's long-suffering. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He makes a promise to us in Jesus Christ And He keeps that promise. I will save you to the uttermost. And until He leads us infallibly all the way, as He leads us infallibly all the way to that final salvation, He's a long-suffering God who never grows weary with us in giving us all His grace and mercy. Goodness. Goodness of God. Goodness forbearance, long-suffering. Behold your God. His goodwill, His loving kindness, His gracious attitude, His favorable inclination. Goodness. Forbearance. Long-suffering. Now in the text, the Apostle speaks of the riches of His goodness. The riches of His goodness refers to all of the saving blessings that come out of God's goodness. His goodwill. So His goodness, His goodwill, that's the treasure chest. His heart. Out of that treasure chest of His goodness come all these riches. All these blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ. Riches. They are so valuable. They were earned by the precious blood of Jesus. Riches, they are so valuable to you. When they come to you, they give you joy and peace and happiness. Riches, plural. There are so many of them. If we should count them, they are more in number than the sand. Riches, they all come out of God's eternal heart of election. Riches, they all run through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Riches, they all come to us by the Spirit and through the Word of the Gospel. Riches, the riches of His goodness. What are they? The text mentions one. Only one. He leadeth to repentance. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Out of that great treasure chest of all of God's goodness, here's one great jewel his leading 
to repentance. Repentance, that word means a change of mind, a turning, a change of mind, a change of heart, so that the sinner now thinks about his sin, what God thinks about his sin. So that the sinner has this inner conviction, my sin is horrible, it's awful, it's a grievous offense before God. And his heart is full of sorrow. And he turns from that sin. And he turns unto the Lord God in whom he believes and whom he believes to be gracious and merciful and a God who abundantly pardons. And as a penitent believer, he cries out to God and says, Lord God Almighty, I'm not worthy of the least of thy blessings. I'm a terrible, wretched sinner. I deserve to perish. But for Jesus' sake, I plead with thee with my guilt-stricken conscience. I plead with thee Forgive me for Jesus' sake. Forgive me. Repentance. Repentance is so important. Repentance is so lovely. It's so beautiful. When we repent. When a loved one repents. When a child repents. When a member of the congregation who is under discipline and with whom the consistory is working repents and demonstrates that repentance with all the fruits of repentance, repentance is amazing. It's worthy of crying, Hallelujah! God be praised! And didn't Jesus say that the angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner that repenteth? Repentance is amazing. And what could explain repentance? Why does someone repent? We all know that the source and strength of repentance cannot be found within us. There might not be anything that we despise more by nature than repentance. We hate it. We hate owning up to our own personal sin, acknowledging our sin, turning from our sin, changing, saying, I was wrong. We hate doing that. We would rather go to our grave fighting against God and saying, God, You are wrong. I am not wrong, God. Thou art wrong. The church is wrong. The elders are wrong. Husband, you are wrong. Wife, you are wrong. Father and mother, you are wrong. I'm not wrong. I'm not changing. I'm not owning up to anything. I'm not to blame. You're to blame. I don't need to repent. And I don't need God and His mercy or the blood of Jesus. I'm fine. What could possibly explain repentance when by nature we're adamantly opposed to repenting? The goodness of God. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Our will is stubborn, but God's will is strong. And in His goodwill, as a good God, He comes and He leads us to repentance. That's His goodness. He forbears with the reprobate because He will keep leading His people to repentance. He's long-suffering to us, word. 
as He keeps leading us to repentance all the way until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Goodness. Our God is so good that He leads to repentance. Sometimes we're very foolish office bearers and very foolish parents. Because we try to drive to repentance. I'll drive her. I'll drive him. I'll drive them to repentance. God doesn't come behind His sheep full of anger and shouting and cracking His whip and trying to drive His sheep to repentance. He leadeth. He goes before us. In all of His mercy and all of His sweet promises in Jesus Christ, He goes before us and He goes within and takes that stubborn will and He so sweetly bends it and He turns us unto Himself in genuine repentance. He leadeth thee to repentance. That's His goodness. Who is a good God as our God is a good God? His goodness, His forbearance, His long-suffering as He leads to repentance. Oh, the riches of His goodness. In contrast to that loveliness is the ugly despising of man. The main point of the, of the apostle is to put to man that question regarding God's goodness. Or, despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? The man is the judge. The proud, self-righteous, conceited judge. Verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art, that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. The judge, not one who's judging righteously according to the Scriptures, but the proud, arrogant, conceited, self-righteous judge who's elevated himself above all others and now hammers and hammers and hammers away at other people in condemnation of them for their sins while he's committing the same sins. The judge is the man who starts hammering away at someone having found out that they've committed adultery. And he's pounding away at them for the horrible nature of their sin. Nobody knows it, but he's leading a secret life. And every night he's at home on his computer where he's addicted and he's violating the seventh commandment. While he's hammering away at other people, he's committing the same sins. 
The judge is the man who used the catalog at the end of chapter 1. Pick any verse. Verse 29, let's say. He's the man living in fornication and in wickedness and covetousness and maliciousness. He's full of envy. He's murderous in the way he behaves. He's a debater who likes to argue. He's full of deceit and malignity, meaning he holds grudges. He will never have mercy upon any. He's a whisperer. While he's living in those sins, he's condemning other people, verse 30, because they're backbiters, they're haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, and so on. This man can be found anywhere. He could be a Jew. He could be a Greek. He's especially the man at whom the apostle can point. Thou, O man. That is, he's a man who will hear this epistle being read in the Christian church in Rome. He's a man who sits under the preaching of the Gospel. Thou, O man. My old man of sin is this man. Your old man of sin is this man. Though I am not this man essentially as who I am in Christ, I do have an old man of sin who is this man. And when I live according to that old man of sin, when I do not walk in the Spirit, when I walk according to the flesh, then I live like this man. And I need to hear the word, Thou, O man, proud, self-righteous, conceited judge who likes to condemn other people for sin when you're doing the same thing. O man. Now, how do you explain this man? So the Apostle says in verse 3, is this how we assess you? How to make sense of you in doing what you do? And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things that, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Is that what's going on here? That you keep hammering away at other people because you think you're going to escape God in the day when He will hammer away at all of your sins. Is that what explains you? You think you'll escape the judgment of God? Or, and now the text, despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Despisest thou God's goodness? Despising the goodness of God does not refer to the goodness of God as it is effectually, savingly, sovereignly being communicated to the heart by the Holy Spirit. You can't despise that goodness. If God's good will is coming to you in the Holy Spirit to save you and bring you to repentance, you can't despise that. God is God. And God in His good will will overtake you in the day of His power and sweetly bend your will and lead you to repentance and cause you to celebrate His goodness. Despising the goodness of God is despising the truth of His goodness. Despising the doctrine of His goodness. Despising the preaching of His goodness. 
It's the sin of a man who hears all about the goodness of God as he sits under the preaching of the gospel. All about the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness and God's forbearance and God's long suffering. But he hates that goodness. He despises it. He loathes it because he's a proud, self-righteous sinner and he does not want to acknowledge that he is a sinner. That he needs someone else. That he needs the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That he can't rely upon himself, but he must rely upon another. So he despises the goodness of God, essentially the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the apostle asks, despisest thou the goodness of God? And of course the answer is emphatically, yes you do. That's what you're doing. You're despising God's goodness. Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? With that statement at the end of verse 4, the apostle is not referring to a reality that is presently being experienced. Goodness. In the man he's addressing. He's not referring to the goodness of God as a reality that's presently being experienced. He is referring to the objective doctrinal fact. The common interpretation of the text is the Arminian interpretation of the text that overthrows the sovereign grace of God, and it's the interpretation that was given by the proponents of common grace in 1924. It's the interpretation that inserts into the text what's not there. Divine intention. Notice the Apostle does not say, not knowing that the goodness of God is intending to lead thee to repentance. That the goodness of God is seeking to lead thee to repentance. That the goodness of God is trying to lead thee to repentance. That the goodness of God is attempting to lead thee to repentance. And then the idea is, why are you despising the goodness of God? Here comes God and His Holy Spirit to work repentance in you, and you're thwarting that, and despising that, and opposing that. And then according to verse 5, out of the hardness and impenitence of your heart. With that interpretation, then God is extending His goodwill, His loving kindness, His saving grace to a reprobate sinner. And the reprobate sinner despises that goodness, resists that goodness, which makes God impotent. He has the intent to lead to repentance, but he fails. His grace is not particular to the elect. It's general to all. His grace is not sovereign, but it's weak. His grace is not irresistible, but it is resistible. The apostle does not say, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God is intending to lead thee to repentance. He's not referring to the goodness of God as a reality that's presently being experienced. Goodness coming to this man. The apostle is saying to any man anywhere, don't you know the truth? 
the objective doctrinal truth of the goodness of God and that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Don't you know that truth? Now, to use an illustration, I could attend a class having a desire to hike Mount Everest, attend a class given by an expert instructor who teaches all about hiking and how to hike up Mount Everest. And in the course of the class, he says to all of the students, high altitude leads to altitude sickness. You need to know that. As you get up on the slopes, you start ascending, have some nauseousness, have a headache, start to feel dizzy and lightheaded. High altitude leads to altitude sickness. That's a fact. Now, if the instructor really wants to impress that upon the students and apply that to all of the students in the class, he could use the personal pronoun. Instead of saying high altitude leads to altitude sickness, he could say high altitude leads you to altitude sickness. And he's not referring to a reality that's presently being experienced. No one's hiking up the mountain right now. Everyone's simply sitting in the classroom. He's simply referring to an objective scientific fact. Here's the fact. Whether you go up a mountain or you never go up a mountain, this is a fact. High altitude leads you to altitude sickness. So here, the apostle is declaring a doctrinal fact. It doesn't matter if you are presently the object of the good will of God or not. It's simply an objective doctrinal fact. It's undeniable. It's incontrovertible. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Don't you know that? And the point is, of course you do. You don't experience that goodness right now. But intellectually, you know the truth of the goodness of God. Why do you despise that? Why? You're always condemning everyone for all the sins other people commit in your pride and in your self-righteousness. As if you don't need repentance. As if you don't need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why do you despise the goodness of God? Repent of your self-righteousness. Believe that God is good. Put your trust in Jesus. You know the truth of God's goodness. The goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. Stop despising it. The Apostle goes on to explain the cause and the result of despising in verse 5. When he says, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Hard. But after thy hardness, the unbelieving judge has a naturally hard heart. And the more he hears the truth of God's goodness and despises it, that word hardens his heart even more. He has an impenitent heart, verse 5. That means he refuses to repent. 
And the more he hears about the goodness of God as it is proclaimed, and he despises it, he continues stubbornly in his way of impenitence. And then don't blame God and say, well, if God's the one who leads to repentance, then God's to blame. God's at fault for why he doesn't repent. No, he's to blame. He has a hard, impenitent heart. That's the explanation for his despising of God's goodness. And what's the result of this despising of God's goodness? Verse 5 says, that thou treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. As we noted, there's this day of wrath coming. That's when all the wrath of God will be poured out upon the reprobate. Now, in that day will be the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That God in all of His judgments, temporal judgments now, and the final judgment and destruction of the wicked, in all of His judgments, God does not deviate in the slightest from what is right. He is the standard, the infinitely good God. And according to His own infinitely good being, God judges. And in the day of wrath, there will be the revelation of the righteous judgment of God so that now men slander God they allege against God he's cruel he's unjust he's capricious he's unfair in all of his judgments but on that great day there will be the revelation of the righteousness of the judgments of God so that even the damned even the damned who perish in hell will acknowledge God is righteous. He's righteous in all His judgments. Until then, the despiser of God's goodness is treasuring up wrath. There's the wrath of God. And in all of His despising, He's treasuring up. So there's more and more and more wrath. Like the dam and all the waters building and building and building with all the sin And then the wall's taken away on the last day, the day of wrath. And all that wrath is poured out upon those who despise God with their hard, impenitent hearts. Despisest thou the riches of His goodness? That's the sharp word. Despisest thou the riches of His goodness? The apostle deliberately puts the text in the form of a question. He makes it really sharp. And you can imagine him looking, looking a man right into the face, right into the eyes, even pointing his finger at the man. That's really what he's doing. Verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. Verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man. Verse 4, the text, Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness. A very, very sharp word. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says the Word of God is sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. Not only sharp in its external form, as the text is, but sharp as the Spirit brings that Word. And when the sharp Word is brought, it has an effect upon the reprobate. The reprobate unbeliever knows he's a despiser of God's goodness. He knows he's hard-hearted. 
He knows he's impenitent. He knows he's treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath. But he does not want to acknowledge that he's a sinner and that he needs a Savior. His heart reacts against that word. And he's hardened by it more and more until the day of wrath. Now, we don't know who's reprobate. There may be one presently who's reacting against the Word. We don't know, though, that such a one is necessarily reprobate. They may be elect. And then God will come in His time and bring them salvation. The reprobate hear the Word. It hardens them all the way till death and the day of wrath. But the Holy Spirit uses the sharp word for the salvation of God's elect people. And here's the question for you and me this week. Do you despise the goodness of God? And if you and I immediately respond and say, well, despise, that's a very strong word. Do I despise, despise the goodness? of No. I do not despise the goodness of God. Well, what does it mean to despise the goodness of God? In this text, you despise the goodness of God when you hammer. When you hammer away at other people in condemnation of them for the sins they commit while you commit the same sins. Maybe we do it in our mind and nobody knows. Maybe we do it with our words. Maybe we do it all together in a nice gathering and start pounding away at other people. And what that reveals is we're very self-righteous. We really don't need the righteousness of Jesus. And though we talk, talk, and talk, talk all about the righteousness of Jesus and the cross and the grace of God, we really don't need it. And so we can hammer away at other people for their sins. And in doing that, we are despising the goodness of God that leadeth thee to repentance. If I'm despising His goodness or you are despising His goodness, then the Word of God says repent. And God uses this sharp word rooted in the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and His goodness to convict us. I've been behaving like a judge, a proud judge, to convict us, to bring us to repentance and sweet reliance upon God's loving kindness and not our own righteousness. Do you repent? Is your heart softened? Do you break over your sins? Do you put your trust in Christ for righteousness? Then you are very rich tonight. However, you may, however many possessions you may have materially, if your heart breaks over your sin, you are a very rich man, a very rich woman, a very rich young person. Because only the goodness of God leads to repentance. And if you repent, the only explanation for that is God's goodness. God has led you to repentance. And what goodness that is. Only a forbearing and long-suffering God would lead us to repentance. If I would do 
what we do against God, if you would do to me what we do against God, if you would despise me and despise me and despise my goodness, I would say, I damn you. And how often do we not despise God's goodness? And he doesn't say, I damn you, but he's a good God. In his forbearance and long-suffering in Jesus Christ, he brings us to repentance. And he brings us to repentance. And over and over again, he leads us to repentance. And he puts that, that figurative hammer, as it were, in our hand and causes us to hammer away at our own sins to be the judge and look at ourselves and examine ourselves and say, oh, wretched man that I am. And he's so good, he not only leads us to repentance over and over again, he forgives us and he forgives us and he forgives us. He declares it in the gospel over and over again. And why? He always brings us back to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that wrath being treasured up All my sins, all your sins, even despising God's goodness, all this wrath being treasured up, and we won't see, taste, touch a drop of it because all that wrath for our sins was poured out upon Jesus. And He bore it all away and He obtained for us righteousness and all the blessings of salvation so that for Jesus' sake, God is a good God toward us. And He leads us to repentance. Don't despise Him. Extol Him. Praise Him. Adore Him. The good God of our salvation. To Him be the glory now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, how great is Thy goodness which Thou hast laid up in store For them that fear Thee, we will sing of that now out of the Psalter, and may we sing it from the heart, having tasted that Thou art good. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen.